Well, good morning and welcome to the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Lewis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, between two of us, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you go and give us a call? It's 291-6901. And you use the area code here in Baton Rouge, which is 225. You can reach us from anywhere inside the continental United States this morning. There you go. We sure wish you would. And just in case you don't get a chance to call in or don't care to call in. Or maybe something happens after we go off the air. or That's right. even next week at midnight. You can always get your questions answered by going to our website, which is agcoauto.com. That is A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. There is a contact bar on each and every page. Just click the button, fill out the little form, and send it on in. There you go. I'll get an answer right on back to you. May not be immediately, but uh, certainly Ooh. within 24 hours, and generally a lot sooner. It just depends on how many times I get to check my email that particular right. if, day. If it's during working hours, it's yeah, pretty pretty regular. Generally, I'm sitting at the computer all day long during the week, so I click on the uh-huh. email pretty frequently. Now, on weekends or when I'm out of town, not as often. I'll generally try to check it once in the morning, once in the evening. Right. Occasionally during the day if I happen to be around a computer, but... Most, most, I was gonna say, <laughs> most of the time, not while we're on vacation. That's right. right that's right. But uh, get asked back in a really timely manner. Best way to get in touch with us. In fact, it's the only way to get in touch with us other than calling in on the radio that's show. That's it. That's why we do the show. There you go. Get you a live answer. I have people sometimes will call in to the shop and say, well, I just want to ask Lewis a question. And, of course, I'm a nice guy and everything, but I just can't come to the phone and answer questions. But it takes 100% of my time just to deal with the customers who already have their cars in the shop. Because they have to get 100% of my time because they're paying for it. And, if you have something, just go ahead and send me an email. You will get an answer back. If not, just write it down, and Saturday morning, this that's, is the time to call in. That's right. That's why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> I had a lady that sent an email to me the other day that I thought was kind of interesting and a little bit kind of fun, and she was saying, why do they call your bright lights high beams? Okay. And I got to thinking about it. I said, that's kind of an old term that's come forward that really, I guess it still has some pertinence, but... The reason they call that a high beam is because when you had a single headlight bulb, there was two filaments in it. Correct. And they were placed in different areas relative to the reflector in the back of the light. And when you hit the brights, bright lights, you wanted more light, what it would do is it would eliminate another filament that was placed to reflect and push the lights higher up. And a farther higher out. beam. Because they're higher up, they travel further out. Now... You might say, well, why don't they just leave them on high? Well, the answer is obvious if you've ever been in an oncoming lane because you blind the other drivers. Correct. So we have to have a compromise between a low beam and a high beam. In other words, we want the driver to be able to see, but we can't blind the oncoming drivers because that wouldn't be fair to them. So you have a low beam which shines the lights down towards the road and slightly out towards the shoulder and far enough out in front of the road where you can see what's going you what's can coming at see you. what's coming but it not so far that it throws it up into the oncoming driver's eyes a high beam shifts the lights up and slightly more towards the center line correct so it gives you a wider field of vision and a further field of vision and those are to be used only when there's no on- oncoming drivers right if you're on a long lonely stretch of country road you definitely want to be able to see further out in that's case right. wildlife or obstructions Whatever. in the road in the road. Mm-hmm. So you would put it on high beams. And that's the reason high beam and low beam. It's not more light necessarily, although some of them do have multiple lights that come on. Mm-hmm. What's happening is it's shifting that beam, the angle of focus of the beam. So it goes from high beam to low beam. Right. And the perception to the driver is I'm putting more light out there. But really you're just changing just the angle change, of the right. lights. 
So it's one of those terms that I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. It, it's come forward, and it really, I guess it still has some meaning, but not quite as much as maybe it did. It's not as easy to perceive what it means as it was maybe at one time. Right. Another one that occurred to me was the word crank. When you turn the key, the car cranks. Uh-huh. And a lot of folks do not realize, or some folks don't realize, all they know is they turn the key and the car is running now. But what is happening? You need a number of things for a car to start. Right. You, you have need, to have fuel. You have to have spark. You it has to have compression. And it and has timing. to have timing. Right. However, even with all four of those components, it has to be manually turned over. It has to start to rotate before those things can come into play. So back in the old days, that was accomplished with a crank. You literally had a crank. You'd push it into the crankshaft, and you would crank the car. Right, and, you'd crank the engine over. Right. When you turn the motor over, then the spark would fire, and the fuel would get in, and the compression would build, so it would start, would start running, running after right. that. Well, many, many years ago, of course, we came up with starters, and the term went from cranking to starting. Right. And the word starting is different from the word running, but it's all sort of blurred in now because when you hit that button or that key, it's so quick because cars start so fast now that you really might not even perceive that it's cranking at all. Where that really comes into play a lot is when you have a problem with the system because especially if it's an intermittent problem, if you go to the shop and you tell them my car will not start, what a mechanic is thinking, okay, it's cranking over fine, but it won't start. So uh -huh. he's looking for things like low fuel pressure, maybe an intermittent spark dropout, maybe a timing issue. Could be a security system. Security system malfunction and those sorts of things. And a lot of times what the person intended was the car wouldn't crank. Correct. In other words, they push the button or they and turn the key nothing and happen. nothing happened. So it's very, very important because when you talk to a technician who is versed in exactly what's occurring – you're going to throw him off on the wrong path, and if it's an intermittent problem, it may not happen right. every time. Well, he's going to sit there and look and look and look for a different problem than what you have. It could cost you a lot more money, and he may not ever come up with the problem because you gave him the wrong symptoms to look for. Right. So it's important to realize that when you push the starter button or you turn the key, there is a, usually a sound, something right. like that. That is when the motor is cranking. If you push the button or turn the key and it does nothing at all, now you've got an issue where it won't crank. So I'm looking at batteries, cables, starter motors, those sorts of things. Something that would stop the engine from turning over. Right. If it turns over or cranks but won't start, that's a totally separate issue. Yep. That's won't start. So you got to kind of get those down. Those two terms get blended in they a whole lot. They get blurred a lot. I mean, probably three, four times a week we have someone calls and you try to clarify it and they just, you can tell they're totally confused. Uh -huh. And if it's a full-time problem, it's occurring all the time. Right. Well, it's pretty obvious. obvious. You come in, you turn a key, it does nothing. You realize, okay, what they intended was it won't crank. But if it's an intermittent problem you're looking for, maybe once every three days it won't crank and you sit there and it cranks, cranks every just time. fine. Well, you don't know that sometimes it will crank but not start or you don't know that it will not crank and not start. Mm -hmm. So you really don't know what things to start looking for or what things to check. So right. Again, you, you got to be willing to, to clarify it with the shop, the person you're talking to. Right. If you this want is what it's results. doing. Right. So another kind of an old term that has yeah. come forward, and I guess it still has some, some pertinence there. Right. I see you got a couple of them there. Yeah, there's, there's one. Everybody uses the word emergency brake now. Right. And where that came from was before vehicles had hydraulic brakes. Right. 
they had a handbrake. Right. And that's how you stopped the vehicle. You right. had a handbrake. A just, mechanical brake. Just like on a wagon. Right. A horse-drawn wagon had a handbrake on it. Mm-hmm. Well, when they developed the hydraulic system, they left the handbrake on it. Right. In case the hydraulic system failed. Well, you they could still stop the car with the sure handbrake. exactly how reliable the brakes were going to be. Right. And certainly the first ones probably weren't as reliable as they are now. So it was technically an emergency brake. In case of an emergency, you still have a mechanical brake. You could stop the, the vehicle. Stop the vehicle and kind of supplement the hydraulic brake system. Of course, over the years, what's happened is that the hydraulic brakes have become so dependable with redundant systems, cross braking, right. and all these different type things. That is no longer an emergency brake. That is a parking brake. Correct. Because that brake is not adequate to stop the car at all. <laughs> no, I've tried it myself. Mm-hmm. You can take in push the pedal with the vehicle just coasting right and it takes a long time yeah, to get it stopped with you that are hardly pedal. even notice it slowing down with some of the newer cars it's a tiny tiny oh, yeah, tiny little mechanism small. it's designed to hold the car still when you park so that it doesn't roll back against the parking pile uh-huh. and jam the transmission or something like that right they see that a lot in the mountains the the real hilly country you park up on a hill you don't set the brake the parking brake before you put it in gear what it does is that the vehicle rolls back against that pawl mm-hmm. that's locked into that tooth in the trans when you get ready to take it out of park it will not come out because right. it, it's jammed the weight of the car is sitting on the parking got, got it jammed people see that a lot like in san francisco right where it's very hilly and a visitor to the city the people who live there know this very right. well a visitor to the city will park on the incline he's got his foot on the brakes uh-huh. so the car is sitting still he puts it in park, and then when he releases his foot from the brake, the car, car rolls, rolls back. back slightly. The entire weight of the car is now on that parking pile. So when you come back to get in your car, you start it. Well, you crank it and start you it. crank it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and you go to shift, and it will not come out of park. Uh-huh. And many times what they have to do is get a wrecker to pull up behind them. And give it a little push. Give it a little push forward. Then you can take it out of gear, and you can go on about your business. Right. But that could be, in San Francisco, probably a $250 I would, I would think, yeah. <laughs> experience. So, like I said, the people who live there know that. Right. And it's one of those things you want to look out for because that is a parking brake. The proper way you would do that is you would pull up, you would let the car, let go of your regular um, brake, you know, let it go ahead and roll back and put the parking brake on, apply the parking brake first. Right. Let go of the regular service foot brake. Let the car roll back and catch, then put it in park. Correct. That, that way, way the weight is being held by, by the, the parking brake. Right. But the hey, term emergency brake yeah. has still kind of stuck and come yeah. through all the years. Here in the South, we don't really use a, a parking brake that much. Well, it's flat. Vehicles, yeah. Yeah, a car is not going to roll off unless somebody gets behind and pushes it. Right. It's just, like I said, you can see for miles and miles and miles because this it's is all flat and well, low land. South Louisiana was a big delta, and the Mississippi River would overflow and spread mud and all packed down. That's what made this part of the country. Right. So there's no mountains here. It's all flat, flat all land. All flat land. So, yeah, you forget there is a parking brake. Yeah, <laughs> most vehicles that come in, they're not even operable right. anymore. Yeah, and they will quit working if you don't use them ever because they don't ever adjust. Right, they got a self-adjuster in them that mm-hmm. makes them adjust if you use them regularly. That's right. We see that quite a bit, and we've got to go in and take them apart, clean them, lube them, and adjust them to get them working again. Yep. Hey, we're going to take a quick little break and be right back with a whole lot more in the Automotive Hour. Oh, I had a bad dream the other night. Can't be worse than mine. I was buried up to my neck in the desert, surrounded by an army of prairie dogs, and their leader rides up. Rides? Yep. It's Yule Brenner, and he orders me to eat this huge mound of candy corn. So all the prairie dogs line up and feed it to me piece by piece. 
I'll never look at that Halloween confectionery the same again. What about you? Well, I dreamed I forgot to schedule my annual general inspection at Agco, and my car left me stranded on I-10. Now that's scary. Agco Automotive is here with the best way to keep up with car maintenance. Get our annual general inspection. You pick the month, we check out your vehicle and recommend any maintenance you may need, which can save you costly repairs down the road. That was a freaky dream. Were you on medication, or did you eat anything strange? Uh, yeah, I actually ate a whole bag of candy corn left over from Halloween. 2014. Oh. Schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. If you just join us, the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, between two of us, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. We certainly appreciate you spending your Saturday morning with us. Just give us a call, 291-6901. And that's what Steve did. Good morning, Steve. Morning, Louis. Yes, sir. I was driving a rental car for three or four weeks, so it was a new car, mm -hmm. year too old, and my regular car, you know, it's an older model vehicle, mm -hmm. eight, nine years old. I know the lights on these later model vehicles are so much brighter, mm -hmm. you know, and you can see so much better. Is there any way you can get the same kind of lighting on the older model vehicles? Yes and no, Steve. Those are LED lights or sometimes HID. HID lights, just depending on what type of setup they've got on them. That's an extremely, extremely, extremely expensive system if you ever have to maintain it. I know we get them in a lot of times, the headlights out, and when you tell people what it's going to cost to change that headlight, they go ballistic. I know we had a was it it Infinity, Infinity. G35 yeah, with a headlight that was out. The bulb itself is 150 bucks, and wow. the little transformer that runs it is about $600. Per side. Right. And you have to take the bumper off to get them out of Most this. cases. So you can spend upwards of about 1000 bucks to change two headlights, 1500 wow. bucks to change two headlights on. What, depending on what part of it. So you got to weigh out, is it really worth yeah. that much to you? You know, it could probably be retrofitted into the car, but you're going to need yeah. a transformer and all that kind of stuff. Now, you got to be careful because what some people do is they'll buy these higher wattage bulbs to try to emulate the same thing, plug it into yeah. their regular sockets, and they'll melt the wiring harness. We get that a lot, too. And that ends up costing you about 500 bucks to repair and replace the wiring harness because they will literally melt everything from the socket back to the switch and even the switch and the multifunction switch. We'll see them. You know, they're just, those things are designed so light. I mean, the bulbs, the lights, the sockets, the connections, the switches. Bare minimum. Just the bare minimum it takes to conduct the current that it's got. So I'm not going to say it can't be done. It can be, but it would be one of those things where you would have to retrofit the entire car. You're looking at at least a thousand dollars. Probably job. so to do it yeah. to do it properly, depending on what okay. application you mm -hmm. have. Okay, right, one more question you bet. related sure. to that. Your older headlight, you know, how they they get dulled or the, yes, they get the yellow, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. What's the best way to clean that to try to improve the you know? The, well, I'll tell you what, Steve. If you go to my website and okay. just type in yellow headlight. On the okay. search bar, I've got two articles with pictures and everything about okay. just that topic. There's several chemicals and stuff out there, polishes, where you can polish them. The mm -hmm. best ones, you go in with a very, very fine grade of emery paper, like a 2,000-grit sandpaper. Sand them yeah. light. Wet sand Wet sand them. And then come back and polish them, and then there's a sealer you put on. And that works really well. It's, it's going to eventually come yeah. back. That plastic yeah. is called polycarbonate that they make headlights out of. Yeah. And it does what they call crazing. If you got a magnifying glass or a microscope and look close, what you'll see is thousands of little tiny, tiny cracks in the surface. Right. And dirt gets into those little cracks. That's what turns it yellow. So you okay. have to sand that layer off and then polish it to get the shine back. 
and uh, it can be done. It'll definitely it normally lasts about a year or so, maybe a little more. Alternatively, you can replace them, but those are obscenely expensive. And some of the okay. aftermarket stuff is not that great. Yeah, it's pretty junk. They do make some aftermarkets that are less expensive, but they're pretty cheesy in a lot of cases. So this cleaning process is that something you do yourself? Or you recommend bringing that to a either way, either way. Go, I tell you, okay. go ahead and Google that. I, I search that on my site. Look at it. Okay. if you just say has a little more than I want to fool with. We'll do it for you, or lots of other places will. But okay. most people can do it themselves. Okay. All right. Appreciate it. All right, Steve. Thanks, man. All right. Thanks, Bill. Mm-hmm. Bye. All right. Two nine one sixty nine zero one is the number. If you want to be part of the automotive fire, we'd love to have you. Of course, we're live and in person in studios. So this is a perfect time to get a in person answer. That's right. Any automotive topic you got in mind? There you go. We'll handle that today. Just give us a call. That's it. And we've got our, a few more of our older terms that have been brought to the front. Present time, right? <laughs> Glove box. Okay. Glove box was a term. That used to be used back in the old days. You had driving gloves that you drove with. Right. And you had to have somewhere to put them. Mm-hmm. So back in the day, they had a box specifically set for your gloves. Your gloves. When, you, when you took them off, you put them in the box. They mm-hmm. stayed with the car. That's right. Well, that driving with gloves has kind of went away, but the yeah. term stayed. Well, they used to have wooden steering wheels, and it was very easy to have a splinter or something in that steering wheel, particularly if the wheel slid through your hand. So drivers would wear gloves. Mm-hmm. And that went back to the old carriage days when a driver of a carriage would wear gloves because he either had a stick or a rope or a rain or a right. tiller or something, and it was pretty rough stuff. It wasn't the smooth vinyl, plastic, le- leather-coated steering wheels we have today. So you would t- typically wear gloves as a driver, mm-hmm. thus the word glove, glove box. box. <laughs> <laughs> of course, now there's everything in there except gloves. Right. <laughs> I'm amazed. Sometimes we'll open those to look for maybe a wheel lock key or something more. Or open a cabin up. filter, yeah, yeah. Open up, stuff comes raining out on the, on the ground. There's all kind of stuff in glove boxes now. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you. Let's go back to our phone lines. Jim, good morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. Yes, good sir. morning. I have a quick question for you on a Honda CRV 2011. Uh-huh. I was going to change the transmission fluid. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, recommends every couple three or four years, right? And I know on other transmissions, I've changed the fluid, changed the filter, and adjusted the bands. Yeah, but that, that's not these, possible on that one, no, sir. Okay, so it's just changing the fluid, there's no band or no, no filter? No, there's no adjustments of anything. It's a totally electronic transmission, so it doesn't use bands. It uses clutches, and those operate by the solenoids up on the top of the transmission. Some of your Hondas do have an external filter. It's not the main filter. The main filter is inside the case, and you would have to take the transmission out and disassemble right. to get to that. That's why it's important, in my opinion, to change that fluid about every 30,000 miles, no more than 30,000 miles. In fact, if, right. I, if I own that car, I do it every 15,000, just because if that wow. filter were to plug up, transmission's coming out, and you got to take it apart to fix that, or you go burn transmission yeah. up. Right. You're talking about, what, four, four and a half? thousand to probably about four grand yeah, yeah. If, you, if you take that wow. transmission out so i mean that job is so falling down simple and if you do it every fifteen thousand, you get by just doing it once and right. you just take the plug out drain three and a half quarts out put the plug in fill it with three and a half quarts go about your business if it's been thirty thousand, what i'd recommend is a double drain and fill and what you do there is you would drain the fluid out fill it drive it about 20 minutes come back immediately drain it and fill it again reason being when you turn the key off the fluid, the pump quits turning, so the fluid washes the filter out temporarily, and it flows back through the filter and temporarily washes it out. It drops to the bottom of the case. So if you drain it immediately, you can get a lot of the debris out of the filter. That's still, how you would clean right. the filter internally. It's still suspended in the fluid, so mm-hmm. therefore you drain it, you drain the, the trash with right, it. Right, and it'll be a double drain and fill. Now, if you do it every 15K, you don't have to do that. You can do it a single time and get by with it just fine. And you got to be sure you do use the Honda product on that. Don't substitute any... No. 
those universal fluids or anything, you will end up with a shutter problem or internal transmission problems. You want the, the right. Honda D, the D, DW1. DW1 Honda right. fluid. And do yourself a favor. When you go over there to get the fluid, go ahead and get the little sealing ring that goes on the drain plug. Mm-hmm. And right. on, on your second drain, change it out. Yeah, they're cheap. Okay. They're, they're cheap. like a dollar. Yeah. And, and if, it if prevents you don't, leaks. Well, it not only prevents leaks, because what happens is that it starts to sweat or leak. Well, the common cure for that is tighten, tighten down some more. more. <laughs> right. And you can very easily pull the threads out of that case, and then you're in a big, big trouble. And that's that's actually a crush seal. It doesn't look like it, but it's a crush seal. Yeah, it's you designed for it down, single use. Right. You torque it down, and it, it crushes one time, and it's done. So the double change is you change it once, you drive it, get it hot again. Right. And it, you Come back and immediately do it again. Yes, sir. Right. It's real handy if you have a lift because you can put it up and immediately do it, or if you have ramps where you can get it up. You don't want to let it sit yeah. too long because all that it'll, it'll kind of settle back out again. You won't get it out of there as easily. Great. All right. Great. Hey, I want to quick tell you, um, I've used these LED lights on my truck, uh-huh. Block Beam, mm-hmm. and they work really well. Yeah. I've had them for two years, and I haven't had a bit of problem. you got to be careful with right. those. Sometimes they work okay. A lot of vehicles, we get them in, it burns the wire and horn and stuff. It just depends on how that vehicle is designed and, and how big right. of an LED you go with on it. But, yeah, yep. you, you got to just be real careful with them. Yep. Okay. Right. Thanks again, guys. All right, Jim. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. All right, 291-6901 is the number if you want to be part of the Automotive Hour. And, of course, if you don't want to be part of the Automotive Hour, you can always hit us on the website. That's right, agcoauto.com, A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. There's a contact bar each and every page. Click the contact bar, fill out the little form that pops up, and send it on in. There you go. We'll get an answer right back to you in that manner. That we will. There you go. You know, earlier you mentioned Tiller. Uh-huh. I don't know if everybody caught it, but I heard Tiller. Yeah, yeah. Tiller is an old word, also. That's right. It, it comes from the the old the first models, the old wagons, the, the old first carriages. automobile. Yeah, a lot of the carriages had a tiller, which would it was like Steer a big wheels. lever, and you would, it would turn the whole front axle rather right. than turn the wheels individually. And then when the automobile came out, they kept using that same concept. Right. Well, they had a big uh, stick. It was basically a tiller. They right. just took a carriage and put a motor in it. Thus, the word horseless carriage. <laughs> there you go. I forgot about <laughs> which that. Which is one. another term. Uh huh. Yeah, it was basically the carriage builders of those days. They didn't have bodybuilders like they have nowadays that build bodies of cars. So they would just take a carriage and they would put a motor and rig it to one of the wheels right. to drive the carriage down the road. And, and they, they kept the same steering system with the tiller and everything. Mm-hmm. And then as cars came along, they started getting steering wheels. And Well, as they went faster, you can't turn the entire axle because you, you got to turn flipping the car over. So they came up with tires that turned, either tire turned. And, you know, funny, some of the best carriages had that feature also. And one thing they had is that when the two wheels would turn, the inside wheel would turn less than the outside wheel. That way it would let it go around a curb because you're going around a bigger radius on the outside wheel. Right. And the way they accomplish that is the little angle of the steering arm. That angle, as it turns, turns faster. Uh The gentleman who invented that was a guy named Ackerman. Right. And that, till today, is called an Ackerman angle. Right. But Ackerman was a builder of carriages way, way back. And that's another one of those little terms. How about that for a little history lesson, huh? (laughs) There you go. The Ackerman angle that allows the wheels to turn at different rates as you're steering. And we still measure that today. They still do on modern cars. Hey, we're going to take one more quick little break. Be right back with more. Dave, hold on. You'll be straight up after this break. 
Man, I had a bad dream the other night. Oh, me too. I was abducted by aliens, but they weren't little green men. They looked more like a cross between a chicken and a gremlin. Like the 80s movie? Yeah, so they take me up to this spaceship and onto this theater stage, and in the audience sits all the cats of my ex-girlfriends, and they're just sitting there judging me. Even Mr. Piddles, who I actually kind of liked. Oh, uh, what was your dream? I dreamed I forgot to schedule my annual general inspection at ATCO and my car broke down. Now that's scary. Hey, at ATCO Automotive, we know it's hard to keep up with maintenance. What do I do at 15,000 miles? What do I do at 75? We recommend an annual general inspection. Just pick a month and bring in the vehicle. We'll give it the once-over and can recommend any maintenance you may need before something causes bigger problems down the road. So did they take you to their leader? No, they made me watch a cat video reenactment of Steel Magnolias. It was horrible. Schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. Just join us, the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. And we've got Dave's been patiently holding. Good morning, Dave. Good morning. Yes, sir. Good morning. We've got a 2.4 liter Ecotec, six speed automatic Chevy Captiva 2014. Okay. I believe the manual says it's time for transmission service. They have 81,000 on it. Mm-hmm. Y'all done those yeah. before on that bid? Yeah, we have. I don't remember that particular one. I know we've had those come in. It's probably a CVT in it, uh, constantly variable transmission. It's not going to be a standard transmission like you think about it. And okay. m- many of those do not have a pan on them and do not have a serviceable filter. Some do. And I just can't recall that one. I have to look at service data. Yeah. I didn't see a pan on it, but I looked around. It looks like there is a, a small drain plug. Mm-hmm. There's also a plastic cover mm-hmm. facing out towards the front of the vehicle mm-hmm. that looks like best I could tell from the internet that that might be where there's a filter. Could very so, well be. Yeah, some of them do have a forward pan on them rather than a okay. bottom pan. In fact, your I think your 4T65E regular transmission has that same kind of a setup on it. It has a front pan. Now, the filter's still in the lower pan, but it has that front pan oh. where you have to get to the valve body and stuff. They uh, do all kinds of stuff, Dave. Anymore, yeah. it was a time when I could you could tell me what you got, and I could tell you exactly what was in there, but there's so many designs now. I have to go to Surface Data just about every time and look right. them up. I just can't keep track of all of them in my head. I, I think I don't remember quite as well as I used to, and there's more of them. So. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so uh, that, there are some of them just, it's just like, done? oh, yeah, yeah. Some of them are just yeah. a drain and fill, like that okay. with the Honda. Some of them are going to, they will have a serviceable uh, filter. You just have to look it up and see. And pretty important to go ahead and do that. I, a lot of them will tell you you can yeah. go 100,000 miles. I'm like I you. Do. I would prefer doing that around 80. Just yeah. because if that fluid gets too contaminated, you can't get all of it out without tearing the unit down and, totally disassemble it so since you're having okay. to leave some of the old fluid in there you want to get it before it gets 100 percent depleted all right all righty well I'll, uh, I'll try to make an appointment and get it yeah, in give, give me a call yeah. and i'll look it up for you and, and we'll see what we have to do good thank you thank you man all bye-bye. right all right bye. all right 291-6901 is the number if you want to follow the automotive i we would love to have you and we're gonna go back to our yeah. old automotive terms there's one that i wasn't too familiar with mm-hmm. but it's called a dashboard yeah why is it a dashboard where did that come from yeah that comes from the old horse-drawn carriage. Okay. You remember the guy that would, he would, the driver would sit up on the seat and he right. had that board that he put his feet on? Right. That was called the dashboard. Okay. And what it did is it kept the horses from throwing up or dashing debris mm-hmm. up at the driver. Right. That's where dashboard yeah, came it from. It protected the driver. And, you know, we don't use the word dashing too much any longer. No. Again, kind Especially of a not, term. Right. I guess if the horse dashed off, he would throw more debris up. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but then the term dashboard. And I guess now it's, well... I don't know if we use it too much anymore. Yeah, 
I don't know exactly what they call that now. They don't really refer to it a whole lot. No, the it's not really anything there anymore. They have the instrument cluster, but that's the instrument panel, right? Where all the instruments go, more so than the entire dashboard. And of course, they're all padded and they're built into a assembly oh, yeah. now. Airbags in them and one thing or another. But that, right. that's interesting. That's where the dashboard, the dashboard, yeah, the horse dashed away. He was going to throw debris up yeah. in your face. That's it. <laughs> and that's what it was for. Yeah, that's cool. There's also one called an all-weather car. Okay. Think about an all-weather car. Mm-hmm. To me, that would be a hard-top car, right? Right. That's what I would think. Right. Well, all-weather car came back when they were started making convertibles. Mm-hmm. The convertible was considered an all-weather car. Right. You could have the top down if it was hot. If it was hot. Or you could have the top up if it was cold and raining. That's right. So it was an all-weather car. It could be go. driven in all kinds of weather. <laughs> Hey, and you know, I took a tour one time of the old Auburn Cord Duesenberg Museum wow. in uh, Indiana. And they said that it was not uncommon for a driver. What Duesenberg did, they did not build a car. They built a chassis engine. And there was a powertrain with a chassis. You would go to a coach builder who would build the body, the body for you. Uh-huh. And that's why every Duesenberg is different because... You, you see the one like the, the speedster, kind of like Clark, Clark Gable drove, right. and people think of that as a Duesenberg, but it's not. They just That was a popular design. Since Clark Gable had one, he was the coolest guy around. Everybody wanted one like yeah. it. Yeah, he was kind of the, the cool guy. But what you, some people could do, the, the rich folks could afford to have a convertible body and a sedan body. And what they would do, they would store the bodies there at the factory for you. Uh-huh. And in the spring, you would go in, have the convertible body put on the chassis, Drive it around the spring, summer. Come, Come winter, fall, starts getting a little colder. You go back and have it switched out for your sedan body. Wow. Can you imagine doing that today? Yeah. That'd be a deal, that, wouldn't it? Wow. <laughs> but it, what it did is it allowed you to have the luxury of two cars with the expense of maybe two, one. two-thirds of a car. Right. Extra, you know, uh, maybe one and two-thirds of a car. So it, it just saved them money. Of course, most of those guys had enough money. Hey, I was going to say, money didn't matter. You had two bodies for a single car. You yeah, know? They, if you can afford a Duesenberg, you That's probably right. weren't too worried about money. That's right. Not at that time. Yeah, back at that particular time in American history, there were folks who really, really were successful because they were bringing new technologies, and you really didn't have an income tax mm-hmm. uh, before, I think, 1917. So those guys made a great deal of money, Yeah, guys like Henry Ford and, some of those, and that's another thing right along with what we're talking about. A lot of people do not realize that there was a Mr. Firestone, uh-huh. and I don't recall his first name now, but he was good friends with Henry Ford, and he invented a method of hardening rubber that right. made it more practical for tires. And I think I remember reading where he had a ball of natural rubber that he was trying to do something with, and he was playing with it. He fumbled it and dropped it onto a hot stove. And when he got it off and it cooled off, he noticed it was much harder than it was before. Uh-huh. So that's where the process of vulcanization kind of stumbled on the process. Right. And- then they started building tires that would last longer. And, of course, Henry Ford was a great consumer of tires. Oh, yeah. So they got to be good friends. And they had several ventures together. They built a large, large rubber plantation together down in uh, South America. Right. At one point, built a railroad out to it to get the rubber and manufacture it and so on as that. There was big money in it. Oh, yeah. You're at Th- that time. Thomas Edison is another one who was a good friend with Henry Ford. Right. All these guys are kind of legends that we think about nowadays, but they were real guys. Yeah, inventors. Uh, yeah, inventors, gearheads in at many best, cases. Yeah. yeah. Sort of like a Louis Chevrolet. Louis Chevrolet immigrated here, I think, from Switzerland with two brothers. Mm-hmm. And 
One of his brothers died at Indianapolis at the Indianapolis 500. The other brother died in Slidell, Louisiana. No kid. Believe it or not. (laughs) (laughs) I think from what I can understand, he may have come down to work with the gentleman, the Higgins company, Uh who was making all the big boats and all to design an engine for him. I'm not sure exactly what he was doing in Slidell, but that would make sense. That was the only manufacturing in this area at that time. time. And he ended up uh, dying in Slidell. In fact, I think he was buried in Slidell at one time. And it seems like I read, read somewhere where he had been reinterred out to Indianapolis where Lewis and okay. I think it was Lewis, Gustave, and maybe Antoine. I don't remember for sure don't remember the three either. names, these brothers. But these were real guys, just yeah. gearheads. And you know, Lewis Chevrolet started the Chevrolet Motor Company. He was a race car driver. And later, later on, he got in league with Duran, who was the guy who formed General Motors. And Duran ended up with the company, and he ended up pretty much with a short end of the stick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I read where he he died working as a line worker at the Chevrolet at the Motor Chevrolet Company plant. assembling wow. cars. <laughs> <laughs> so just, just funny the way things work yeah. out there. But, yeah, uh, when you start going back into the history of the old automotive industry, it's just sort of funny about how some of this stuff. How, where they came from and the name. And yeah. I remember reading the word champion champion spark plugs Uh was a gentleman named alexander champion who built spark plugs and obviously henry ford was the biggest consumer of spark plugs in the world by a wide measure so henry was one of those guys that he thought hey if you can sell to me you can sell to me exclusively right well when general motors started coming along they wanted some spark plugs also and they went to alexander champion and he couldn't make a champion spark plug for For chevrolet Chevrolet. because henry would have got mad at him and that would have really right well that would have ended yeah that would have so, ended his, uh, his Ford career. Rather, he invented a spark plug called the AC. And I'm going somewhere with this. Okay, I'm listening. <laughs> AC was Alexander Champion. Uh-huh. Later, AC merged with the Delco Electronics Lab right. to become AC Delco. And that's how that AC Delco thing, came along. That's how it came along, but it was to make spark plugs for the General Motors cars. Right. And, of course, the Dodge brothers at that time were engine builders. They didn't build a car. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a foundry, and they used to build engines for Henry Ford. Okay. And they amassed enough money to go off on their own and start their own company. Then later on, the Dodge brothers, I think, merged with Walter Chrysler and formed the Chrysler Motor Company. Right. So it, it's just funny to really to go back into history kind of and figure about out how all that came about. The names that you hear and, and all those sorts of things. So Yeah. One other little term you had there which one was that? the trunk the trunk came along pre-1930 right vehicles built that at that time did not have a place to store anything of large size if you went on a trip that's right so what you would do is you had a leather trunk that would sit on the back of the vehicle on a folded out shelf and you would strap it down with leather straps Mm -hmm. That's where you would put all that your belongings. That was the trunk. That because was it called was a trunk. trunk. And again, it goes back to carriages because if you ever look at the back of a carriage, an old it always carriage, had a there's trunk. a big trunk back there. Right. And it's either a wooden or leather or some type of a trunk, and it had leather straps holding it closed. I remember some of the older cars even had the chassis was extended out, uh-huh. and the trunk would sit on that extended piece of chassis. Yep. Other ones had like a shelf that would fold down. I guess still old, you just tie it on there some kind of way. Right. Just strap it down with leather straps. And they had some sort of an opening on the back, even on a T-Model Ford, but it wasn't much storage. It was a little small right. area. I don't think you could really put much in there. So it was very common for people to tie a trunk on the back of the car 
especially during the Depression when people were being displaced a lot. Maybe they lost the farm and Moving they threw around. everything they owned in an you old know, T-model Ford. and Drove off, yeah. What, everything they owned wasn't a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> but they would put it into a trunk, and that's where the term trunk came right. from. The, the auto man, uh, automobile manufacturers mm-hmm. saw that and just started incorporating it into their designs, and they got away from the external trunk and just made it an internal an part internal of the vehicle. Trunk. That's right. In fact, on the 1940 model Ford, it had such a large trunk that it became a favorite of the bootleggers. Oh, yeah. Because well, you they could, could put store a lot of hooch back there. That's it. <laughs> you put about 40 gallons of whiskey back in that big old trunk. A big old flathead V8 sitting up and front. And big you could... flathead V8 didn't hurt either because you could outrun the, the revenues. The revenues, the yeah. GN. So, yeah, that became the car of choice to the, to the old moonshiners. Ironically, if you go to England, it's not a trunk. Even it, today, it's called the boot. Right. But, and I think they still call it a boot. They do. In England, and, and maybe even in most of Europe, I'm not sure. And do the same thing with, with the, the hood. They don't call it a hood. They call it a bonnet. Right. In, in many cases. And the windshield is a windscreen. Right. Yeah, that's, the terminology is, is different mm-hmm. as to the different parts of the world. I've also noticed when we get email from folks in Europe, particularly in England, the word tire is T-Y-R-E. It's not T-I-R-E. That's right. And sometimes the word gauge is G-A-U rather than G-U-A. Uh-huh. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's just little little things like that. Yeah, little terminology differences, I guess, depending on the things and the, the reasons why and who, yeah. who knows who knows. all. Yeah. <laughs> I know also they'll call it, I don't know if they still do it, but one time a truck was called a lorry. Over in England? Yeah, it wasn't called uh-huh. a truck. I know back during the war they would call them the lorries, which was the big trucks that they would haul the war supplies and all because they would come across on ships mm-hmm. obviously and they would unload them but they had to put on trucks to bring them out to the troops and or they'd airdrop them or whatever they were going to do to get them where they went but they had a problem a lot of those lorries were ford trucks because ford was a huge manufacturer at that time and they had flathead v8s in them mm-hmm. well the flathead v8 always had trouble overheating right because they run the exhaust through the cooling system and it was always a a problematic thing. And when they started really overloading these trucks they for, started for the running. war, they really started running hot. And this obscure engineer called Arcus Duntoff, okay. which we'll come back to him in a second, All right. <laughs> decided he was going to solve that problem. And he came out with an overhead valve cylinder head that would fit on a flathead V8. Okay. And he called it an R-Dunn head. R-Dunn, huh? Arcus Duntoff. Okay. And that became very, very popular with race car drivers and stuff, right. hot rodders in the States. And you will occasionally still be able to come across one of those old R-Dunn heads here. I know at the Don Garlitz Auto Museum. In Florida? Yeah, in Gainesville. He has a set of R-Dunn heads. No in kidding. And that's where Arcus Duntoff came from. And if that name sounds familiar to you, Arcus Duntoff, he was a GM engineer later on, basically the father of the Corvette. That was his brainchild was the Corvette. Okay. And also the Duntoff Cam. He was a high-performance kind of guy. Yeah, gearhead. Yeah, gearhead. gearhead. Remember when the 57 Chevrolets came out with the 283 yeah. and the power pack engine? It right. had a little bigger valve in the cylinder heads and had a Duntoff Cam in it, which Arcus Duntoff again. Right. And that was the high-performance offering from 1957 all the way up to 62 when they came out with the, the 327. Two- the 283 was the hot ticket up until then yep (laughs) hey one last quick little break be right back with more on the automotive hour phew i had a bad dream last night girl me too i was out on a date with matthew mcconaughey well that doesn't sound too bad but literally 
All he could say was, all right, all right, all right. Still, it's... In auto-tune. All right, all right, all right. All right, all right, all right. Over and over and over. Oh, it was a nightmare. What about you? I dreamed I forgot to schedule my annual general inspection at Agco, which cost me thousands in repair. Now that's scary. Agco Automotive's general inspection is the best way to make sure your car performs at its peak and you're not surprised by any major repairs. Bring your vehicle in once a year and we'll recommend any maintenance. We can even help decide if it's worth fixing or time for you to purchase another. My dream was scary, but yours was, uh, all wrong, all wrong, all wrong. <laughs> Okay, are you finished now? Schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. You just joined us at the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, president of Agco Automotive. We've got Mr. Brian Terry, our co-pilot, right here in the co-pilot seat. Hey, between two of us, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Still got a few minutes. Go ahead and give us a call. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've just about exhausted all of our uh, I believe all, we automotive have. terms there. but At least the ones we know about. The ones I know about. I'll research that and maybe come up with some more if anybody likes an yeah. idea of it. You can send me an email and tell me you like it, or you can send me an email and say you hate it. All right. One way or the other, that's the way it'll go. All so, right. <laughs> we'll let the majority rule. There this, you go. This is kind of sort of a little democracy here. <laughs> We're not a constitutional republic. or You might say more like a monarchy, but there you go. we do listen to the, the vast pe- people. The, the majority of the people, yeah, we always take that into account. So. All right. But... We were talking just a little bit earlier, and the gentleman was talking about the new headlights uh-huh. and stuff on cars. And certainly they do put out better light. They do. But it is at a price. Those have a very high-intensity light bulb in them that's very expensive for the most part. Those bulbs normally will cost – the cheap ones are around $100 a piece. The more expensive ones can be $200 or more. And you got to watch. There are some aftermarket ones out there which are less expensive, but sometimes the aftermarket bulbs can burn up. The right. They'll draw a lot more amperage across what, that whatever circuit. Whatever reason, they may burn that transformer up. And then when that happens, that can be anywhere from 500 on up. Sure. And it's there's one on, on each side of the car. And just diagnosing those is a lot more difficult than the old days. When a bulb went out, then you said, well, let's get a new bulb. Right. But when the bulb goes out now, you don't know if it's the bulb, or is it the transformer, or is it maybe the wiring in between, or, or what it is. To it. And yeah, at right. 200 bucks, you can't afford just to pop a bulb in there and see if it works. Right. The older bulbs were 20 30 bucks. At I mean, most. you could pop a bulb yeah. in there, and, and if it worked, great. You had it fixed. Two or if three dollars more average. But So what you have to do now more often is that when the bulb quits working, if you don't have any type of test equipment to check it, you can take the bulb that is working, and generally they're the same side to side. Correct. Switch the bulb side to side. If it still does not work, or if the bulb that you had works on the other side, then you know it's a transform and not the bulb. Well, you've got to you've got to expect the wiring to the right. transformer also That's because right. the signal could not be there. Right, and you can't put a voltmeter or anything in that transformer because no. some of those put out three to five thousand volts right. at a high intensity. So they may smoke your voltmeter well, and still not get a reading. You have regular wiring going to it, and then from the backside. You have a steel braided cable and wiring that goes up and it feeds a plug that feeds the back of right. the light bulb now. And generally it's all screwed together just to right. keep people from getting there tampering with it because that could give you quite a jolt. Well, and it's all sealed up too. There's caps on the back of the, the headlight assembly has a cap you have to take right. off to access the bulb. Because if moisture they, gets in right. that kind of voltage. They don't want moisture in it. They don't havoc. want dirt in it. They want it not sterile, but they want it clean and dry. Well, with that sort of voltage... 
floating around. If you get anything in there, you can set up an arc. And sure. an arc is like a cutting torch or plasma torch. It's going to burn right through anything really, really quick. So, And you end up you know, with a hazardous chemical uh, fire or something well, like that. And your headlight assembly is going to look like Chernobyl. Yeah, you know, it's when it goes off. Melt down, and that can be obscenely expensive oh, yeah. to try to go in there and, and fool with. Now, the other pro- part of that problem, because all these pretty plastic assemblies and all they put on there, which mm-hmm. look really, really cool, but many cases you have to remove the front bumper just to access this stuff. Right. They When they put it together, they put the headlights against the core support, then they put the front bumper fascia on, and it covers up a lot of the mounting hardware. Well, so you, it makes it pretty. Well, yeah. But it may be makes a, it all blend together. Three and three and a half hour job just to get in there to replace this. Now, where I'm going with all that is, let's say you've got one headlight out. Now I know they're two hundred dollars a piece, but they've you both been lit the same exact amount of time. And you're gonna spend the labor to pull the whole bumper the cover. The whole off. bumper is off. So do you want to go ahead and change the other side also? Right. So now you've doubled <laughs> right the cost of your parts. Although you may save yourself a good deal of money on labor. Because if you put it all together, change the one headlight that's bad, and two months from now the other, the other side goes, goes out. out, well, the bumper's got to come back off to change that Right, one. and not only that, but that is a painted plastic bumper. Right. You run the risk of scratching it, chipping it, dropping it, you know, something happening Skinning to it, it while it's not on the paint vehicle. peeling off while you're right. flexing it around. Right. What have you. And so It's best to least handle it. Yeah, the less you can handle it, the better off you're going to be because there's less chance of some talk, sort of a mishap. And same thing with all the connectors and everything else. Those are designed to be pretty watertight and right. airtight and all that. But every time you take them apart and put them back together, they're probably a little bit less And not only watertight. that, you run the risk of dropping the little seal out and not noticing it. Then you put the connection back together, you have no water seal in it. Right. And lets water intrude into the connection, which burns them up. That's right. Because if you've ever driven down the highway at 70 miles an hour with a blinding rain, there is a tremendous amount of water, and it's going all over those headlights. Sure. A lot of it is getting its way, making its way under your hood. It's right. getting on all sorts of things. We see that all the time where someone will come in, and maybe their alternator is burned up on their car. And you look, and the lower splash shield, maybe they hit a curb or parking log and broke that off, and it was dragging, so they just took it off. Right. And they said, well, we don't need this, and they just threw it away. Well, well I, I can tell you, anything put on that car by the manufacturer was put there on purpose. Oh, absolutely. They have already stripped that design That's to right. the absolute bare-bones minimum. I remember there was an old saying years ago, marketing saying, that there are no unimportant parts. Mm-hmm. And believe me today, that is probably 10 times more so. There are no parts on that car that don't absolutely have to be on there. Right. And the purpose may not be clear to you when you're sitting there in your garage on a nice sunny day. (laughs) But when you're going down the road and that front tire is spinning and slinging water up and that water is getting inside your alternator and that $600 computer-controlled alternator goes out and it's about four hours' labor to get to it because it's buried up under the bottom of your car. And you hope only it takes the alternator out. Yeah, you're in for like a little $1,000 discouraging experience Exactly. Because someone left. The shield off. A fifteen dollar took, took it off. Yeah, shield off. So every single one of those shields and stuff needs to be there. Right. And the same thing with the wiring. When they run wire from point A to point B to point C to point D with a clip in between and all that, that's the way it needs to go. Right. You can't just string it across there. There's a reason <laughs> they did it that way. Believe me, because they have figured out not only the cheapest way, but the only way that's going to work. And you start moving that stuff around, and you're you, setting yourself up. 
generally going to be in for an experience that's not going to be a whole lot of fun. <laughs> that's for a fact. There you go. Hey, I see we are just about out of time. We're going to start winding it on up, getting ready to get on out of here. I'd like to thank all our podcasters for listening this week and every week. And tell your friends, go to your favorite broadcast or rebroadcast service, whichever that might be. Mm-hmm. Find the written review, and please fill it out for us. Hey, whichever service you might use, there are dozens and dozens of good ones. There's Podbean and Podcasts and Oh, geez, I can't remember all the names of them. Of course, Stitcher and iTunes are the bigger ones. Bigger ones, yeah. But they all have some way to put a review on there. We really appreciate that because it moves us up in the rankings. And if you just can't find a way to do that, you can always go to Google and just put a review on our company website. That'll work. Yeah, just go ahead to Google, and when you type in Agco Automotive, which is our company name, uh-huh. it'll bring it up. You can put a review there if you like. Perfect. And that'll move us on up in the rankings, get more people listening so we can keep on doing the program. Hey, pre opinion, based on our experience in the automotive industry, have a great weekend. Thank you.